So this morning we begin in the book of Exodus. Hopefully this won't take us 40 years. But it may. Some of you got that and some didn't. That's okay. As we come to the book of Exodus, we come to it the same way that we have come to all the other books of the Bible that we have looked at together. And it's not so much to study God's word as we want God's word to study us. God's word is living and active. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts to the heart and marrow so that we can see who we are and we can see who God is. And so that's what we're going to look at in this, in this second book as we've already finished Genesis now as we move into Exodus. And as we do, um, we need to realize that God is moving the redemptive story along. Right? This, is a, this is a redeeming story. The storyline of the Bible is pretty simple. It's God redeeming, gathering, sanctifying, and sending fallen people into the world for his glory. So there it is if you wanted to write it down. That's the storyline of the Bible. So any point when you open your Bible and stick your finger into any page, you're going to find that God is doing one of those things. He's either rescuing people, sanctifying people, people gathering them together, or sending them out for his glory. And I hope you notice how that fits with our mission statement, right? Redeeming is the gospel. And then he gathers people together in community. And then he sanctifies them. That's our grow mission. And then he sends them out. That's our go mission. So what we're trying to do as a church is simply fitting our lives, our church family, into the storyline of the Bible and what's going on as God continues this story now in Exodus, where he's going to continue to unfold what it means for him to redeem, gather, sanctify, and send his people. And so there's some questions I hope maybe will be helpful for us as we head our way through this book together. I have these printed out, and you can get them as you leave this morning, so you don't have to write them down. But there's five questions here, which is basically, how does the book of Exodus going to move this, this story along? What do, we, what do we see incomplete or insufficient in Genesis that now we see God revealing more of himself and more of how he rescues people and how he's going to bless all the nations through this family? So how does it move the story along? We're going to see God reveal himself with new names and new ways, with new attributes. We're going to see God fulfilling promises and making new ones. And we're going to see some very specific things about the human heart as we work our way through the book of Exodus. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 very clearly tells us, I love it when the New Testament helps me to understand how to read my Old Testament, then I know I probably won't jack it up too bad. So it says this, I don't remember how much I put up there. I'll just read it up there because I'll probably read too much if I read this. So this is what he says. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. So if you know the story of Exodus, you see the imagery that's here. And all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock, capital R, that followed them. And the rock, capital R, was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So as we work our way through this book, we're going to see how these people desired evil so that we can go, I don't want to do that. I don't want to follow their example in what they did. So there's a clear thing we're going to look for as we work our way through this book. The other thing the New Testament tells us, it's very clear, and this is on your, uh, 
your bookmarks. Justine in here. Justine is not in here. Thank, thank Justine. You see her. She did all those bookmarks for us that have this verse on it because I wanted this to be front and center for us as we work our way through this book. But here's what the author of Hebrews says, and he's referring back to Moses. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all the house of God. So just in case you didn't know, when we get to chapter 2, it's all Moses. It's just Moses. Moses, we're going to talk all about Moses. Then he says in verse 3, For Jesus has has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. So we're going to see how Moses was faithful in God's house. We're going to see how Moses was worthy of glory so that we can then say that Jesus is better. Jesus is worth more glory, as much more glory as a builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all the house, on all of God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house If indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting in our hope. So we're going to look at Moses. And we're going to see what Moses does and look at how great it is. And then we're going to look at what Jesus does and how Jesus does it greater. How Moses is worthy of all kinds of glory for what he did, but Jesus is worth so much more glory. So as we study Moses, we're really going to be watching Moses walk. And we're going to see the shadow of Christ over him the whole time. From the very beginning to the very end of the book of Exodus. That's another great question we can ask ourselves is, how is Jesus worth more glory than Moses is? I'm assuming everyone is familiar with the book of Exodus to some degree, or at least you've seen the cartoon movie or something. So we have a little bit familiar. It's interesting. I don't know about, as I read all the books of the Bible, if there's a book that that bursts with live, uh, vivid imagery and pictures, it's Exodus. I mean, there's no other books that, that, like, you can just watch the video, even if you've never saw a movie. I mean, it just unfolds with vivid pictures of action and drama. And it's just amazing to see all the ways that God uh, foreshadows the elements even of the gospel through all the action that we see in the book. In fact, one theologian said that all the elements of the gospel are found in the drama that unfolds in the book of Exodus. So we're going to see that. We're going to see how God cares for his people, provides for his people, saves his people. We're going to see God's attributes that we didn't see pop up in Genesis or now are going to pop up in Exodus, and new names are going to come to the surface also. So you excited? Yes. I am. I am. So Mark's going to read. Without any further ado, we're going to jump into chapter 1 this morning. So Mark's going to come read uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, which sets the stage really for the entire book itself. So Mark, it's all yours, buddy. Read away.
Thank you, Mark. So did you notice any overlap between Genesis and Exodus in those first verses? What did you see? Okay, the fruitful and the multiply. Good. They're still in Egypt. Good. So this is like part two, right? Genesis is part one. Now we transition. There's this overlap. I mean, Moses begins by recapping uh, the end of Genesis, naming all the brothers, naming that there's, telling us that there's 70 of them all together, and it's like this triumphant moment. And then he gets to verse 7, and we find out that they all, just verse 6, sorry, that they all died. I mean, that, that's supposed to be a heart stopper for us as we read it. They all died. The, the family, the, the chosen family, the one that's going to bring blessing to the, all the nations, they're dead. They're gone. Every one of them. And so here lies the wonderful transition in verse 7 that is meant to impact our hearts this morning. God transitions here in verse 7 from having a family to having a people. That's massive. That is massive. He goes from having just a family to now having an entire people, a nation, that he is going to give himself to, that he is going to love. And so that really is, I think, the theme that runs through the entire book of Exodus. That's the, that's the melodic line. That's the thread. It is that God is going to take people to be his, and he is going to be their God. And so it happens in two steps. He says it twice. If you look over, can you turn to chapter 6? You're going to want to look at chapter 6, verse 7. You're going to want to box this verse in. Because this box, this verse will, will shed light on everything that's happening in the book of Exodus. Chapter 6, verse 7. God says this, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. That's what's happening. From Genesis 1-1, all the, Exodus 1-1, all the way to the end, God is going to take them to be his people, and he is going to be their God. You got that circled? All right, now go to chapter 29. As you get to near the end, chapter 29, verse 45. Chapter 29, verse 45, he says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. Do you see the two steps in both of those verses? It goes from, I, I will take you to be my people. In, in chapter 29, verse 45, it's, I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be your God. I will be their God. He's like, I'm going to take you out of bondage, and then I'm going to take the bondage out of you. That's really what he's saying. I'm going to set you free from affliction, and I'm going to set you aside for a relationship with me. I'm going to take you to be mine, then I'm going to show you what it looks like to live with me, to walk with me, for me to dwell with you once I've rescued you. So this is how this book really is structured. The whole book itself really can be divided into two parts that follow this exact same pattern. In chapters 1 through 18, God takes the people out of slavery. And then the second half of the book, God takes the slavery out of the people. The slavery to sin, out of them. That, that's the, how the book is divided. So I love it. The book is actually divided right in half, set up for the purpose of showing us this is the theme of the book. That God is going to take 
a people for himself, and then he's going to dwell among them, and he's going to be their God. He sets them free outwardly from slavery, and then he's going to set them free inwardly from, from their inward slavery. And isn't this just a picture of the gospel? I mean, the way the book unfolds is a picture of the gospel. God doesn't come to us and say, you straighten yourself up, and you get free and clean up yourself, and then I'll take you to be mine. No, he takes us to be his, and then he helps us to get set free from sin. So even the order that Exodus unfolds, I think, is meant as a foreshadowing, as the redemptive story unfolds a little more and a little more, that this is how God works. God doesn't say you get rid of all your sin and get your act together and look good and try to impress me, and then I'll take you to be my people. No, it's I'm going to rescue you from your slavery before you do anything before you've cleaned up anything, before you've changed your lives at all. You're still worshiping other gods or whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm taking you to be mine. And then we're going to talk about how I can set you free from the destructive patterns that are in your life. So even as we looked at how it unfolds, the the book itself, I think it's a beautiful picture of the gospel and what God does for us. And so we see in verses 6 and 7, this transition, God is now taking a people for himself. So there's a first flashback, I think, to Genesis. The other one, I think Kalen already pointed out, and that is the, the refrain at the very beginning of Genesis chapter 1, where God says this in verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And that's exactly what happens here, right? That's what their people are doing. They're, they're verse uh, 7, right? They're fruitful, they increase greatly, they multiply, they grow exceedingly, and the whole land is filled with them. So God's blessing is on them. And this is foreshadowed throughout the entire book of Genesis as we get into Exodus. He says the same thing to Abraham. He says the same thing to Isaac. And then he says the same thing to Jacob three different times. So all of this comes to a culmination in Exodus 1, you almost want to like, doo, doo, doo. God did it. He did it. Which tells me something about God. God is faithful. God is faithful. When God says he's going to do something, he does it. When God makes a promise, he fulfills it. You can trust God. That's really the whole point of these first few verses. You can trust him. He's faithful. He keeps all his promises. Do you believe that this morning? Not just for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but do you really believe that for yourself? For you, like today, and whatever stuff's happening in your life. Do you believe that he is faithful, that he's trustworthy, that all the promises that he's made to you in his word, he's going to keep them all. You can bank on it every time. Do you believe it? I'm going to share a little side note for a moment. A few weeks ago when Tyler preached, I was sitting here and Tyler was preaching the gospel and he was asking, do you believe that your sins are forgiven? And I remember sitting here and just thinking, I do, but why is it not getting in my heart? Why am I not like, like I should be moved by this. This is good stuff. And I feel like the Spirit just said, well, then tell yourself that it's true, Matt. And I remember as I was sitting right here, taking Tyler's words and preaching them back to myself. Yes, he is faithful. Yes, my sins are forgiven. Yes, it has nothing to do with my good works. And as I kept 
repeating that in my head, my soul began to swell with joy. And so I, I want to encourage you, maybe this is a little, how to, how to hear a sermon for the years to come, how to hear more Exodus sermons. When you hear something you know should like rock your world and it doesn't, play it in your head. Let, let it reverberate in your mind. Say it back to yourself. Say it out loud. <laughs> I won't mind. <laughs> so when I ask you this morning, do you believe that he's faithful? I want, you, I want to hear you do like the psalmist and speak it to yourself. Yes, he's faithful. Say it back to you. He's faithful. He's faithful. Whatever you think about God today, know that he's faithful. And he's going to keep all of his promises that he makes. All of them. Every one in his word that he makes to you, he will keep. And this fulfillment of this promise really is good for us. It's good for you and it's good for me. Because in 1 Peter it says, we've memorized this together. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. A people. That's us. So here in Exodus where God says, I'm going to now take a people for myself, you got to picture his arms going now. He's, He's gathering us into that. We're part of the people. We're part of these people in Exodus that God says, I'm going to have you join the party. You're going to be part of this redeeming story, and I'm going to bring you into it. And so this theme of you will be my people and I will be your God extends all the way through today to this moment in time. This verse reverberates into this room. And we can say, I'm part of it. I'm part of the people that God is going to take as his own possession and make, him, make us his own. So God's faithful. And there's another thing I see right here. And these are the kind of things I think I could just overlook and just keep on reading. But you've got to realize how much God loves to bless his people. I mean, look at what he's doing here. He's gathering together. He's fulfilling his promise. And, and look at the, the, the way he describes it. They're fruitful. They increase greatly. They multiply. They grow exceedingly strong. I mean, God is blessing them. God, God loves. That's his posture, is to bless his people. And I think there's times we're going to see God sp- physically blessing his people in Exodus. And we're going to see that there's a spiritual blessing that parallels it. Does that make sense? Now, you may hear some of those over the course of this study or this time in in Exodus together and go, all right, Matt, you stretched it a little too far there. You you took the symbolism too far. And that's okay. You You can not agree with all of them. But I think there's something here. I think God loves to bless us too. And I think we could counter many blessings, name them one by one, because there's millions of them that are practical for our everyday that he does for us. But then there's all the spiritual blessings. There's all the things that he's doing inside of us. He's making your faith fruitful and multiplying. And I I need that more than I need the other blessings. Not that I'm not grateful for the other blessings, but I need that. And I think God God blesses us often physically, but also just spiritually. I think there's symbolism here of God making our souls fruitful, our souls multiplying, our souls growing and and growing exceedingly strong. Can Can you say yes to that? Do you feel that? God blessing you, God, God making your faith strong, carrying you along, and making your heart fruitful. I think these are the blessings. I think these outward blessings can help us with our inward blessings. We can, we can see the parallels between the two. So God loves to bless. I don't know, maybe you have a, a picture of God frowning or stingy. You need to know that he is generous and giving, and he loves to bless his people. So that's the second thing I see here. But then we've got to head into verse 7 and into verse 8 and all the way down to verse 14. And we've got to make sense of that. 
because I think there's some more points that God wants to bring to our attention this morning. The third one is this, that blessing and bitterness are part of God's good plan, or God's plan often includes bitterness as well as blessing. In verses 8 to 14, Moses uses a long variety of words. I have them all circled in my Bible. I'd encourage you maybe to do the same thing. From verse 10 to 14, he describes their suffering. He does this in vivid detail. In verse 10, the king says, let us deal shrewdly. That's the first one. This is describing their situation. Verse 10, deal shrewdly. Verse 11, afflict them with heavy burdens. Verse 12, oppressed. Verse 13, ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Verse 14, make their lives bitter with hard service. And again in verse 14, ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Why does Moses repeat this so many times in so many different ways? Because he didn't have the ability to increase the font size and bold it. So instead he repeats it in different ways, to make sure we know that they're going through a serious trial. I think there's a principle here that God's people, when they're fruitful and exceedingly strong, they're often met with trials. You're often met with trials. And in this case, the trial comes because the king of Egypt feels threatened by how blessed these people are. He feels threatened He thinks if we go to war, these Israelites, they're going to join our enemy and we are going to get crushed. They don't ask Israel what they're going to do if they go to war. They make an assumption that they will go against us. And so that's why they put heavy burdens and oppress God's people. They assume that God's people will take sides. So the king judges them, prejudges them and says, this is what they're going to do and draws conclusions on them. And I thought about this, I'm like, isn't that how the world works today, right? It's either you're for me or against me. Either you agree with me or you're my enemy. And here, that's kind of where he's going without even asking the question. It's like, you're automatically, I'm against you, just because I know who you are. You've got that God, so I don't like you anymore. Stiff-armed, rejected. And so that's what they're experiencing right out of the gate, that God is on their side and they don't like that. And it leads to relational division and conflict, obviously here, serious, serious pain. So here, Exodus 1, first couple verses, God's people experience ruthless oppression at the hands of the Egyptians. And I guess the, the hard part is we know the end of the story, right? So we know this is all just a setup. It's a setup. It's a setup so that God can show off his rescuing power. So that God can begin to paint a picture of what it looks like for God to redeem people who are in slavery. So, so it's all a setup, and we know that. God is actually letting man's evil plan play out so the people will know him and experience him in amazing ways. They'll experience him in ways they would never experience him otherwise. So this raises a heart question for me. Would I rather go through something difficult, burden, bitterness so that I can see God's power or would I rather avoid the pain and the difficulty and the trial and miss out on experiencing God's power? Would I rather go 
pain-free on this earth and not experience God's nearness through suffering, God's closeness, God's care, God's power? Or would I rather go through some trials and suffering and pain so that I'll know the nearness and the closeness and the power and the grace of God? It's a tough question. I'm not praying for trials. But shouldn't that impact how we think about them? Why we're so quick to avoid them and run from them and hate them and deny them and reject them and not want them? I wonder if God does things in our lives daily, weekly, monthly to show off a little bit but I'm too busy grumbling inside that I miss out what God's doing. That's just me. Could it be that God wants to rescue me from a situation and that's why he puts me in it so he can show me how great he is to get me out of it? Could it be? Could it be that it's all part of God's plan so that he can say over me, you will be my people and I will be your God. So I'm going to put you through things to show that you're mine and that I'm with you. And so this chapter is, is hard, but because we can read it and know the end, we know that there's a rescue story coming. And there's also some hints here, I think, about how to deal with that then. How do you deal with bitterness, with suffering, with trials, with being mistreated? How do you handle it? And so I think there's some things here we see about God, even in that, by what he does here with his people. And one of them is this. I think that God wants us to know that he knows when you are in bitter affliction, that he knows I've been around long enough to know that when a trial starts, the first thing that I can think or say is, where's God? Where is he? That's just knee-jerk, flesh, sin reaction to anything that doesn't go my way. Where's God? Showers leaking through the family room ceiling. Where's God? This relationship is really hard. Where's God? I'm really, really sick. Where's God? Finances are terrible right now. Where's God? Parenting is so hard. Where's God? Instead of wondering if maybe God is doing it so he can show us his great plan to help us. And he sees us in this. He sees you. He's not turned his back. He sees you in it. And so I think the hint here that makes me draw this point that God sees you, whatever you're going through today, he sees you, is in verse 8. In verse 8, it says, A new king arose who did not know Joseph. And maybe I'm reading into this too much, but I can almost see Moses jesting at us a little bit, as if to say, there may be a new king that doesn't know Joseph, but there's another king that does. There's another king more powerful than this king who does know Joseph and does know Joseph's family and does know Joseph's people. And throughout the rest of Exodus, we are going to be invited to compare and contrast King Pharaoh to King God (laughs) over and over again. I mean, they're going to go face to face, right? You know the story. They're going to go head to head the whole time. And we're invited to compare the two. And in this case, I think Moses wants us to grab a hold of, even at this point, that as you go through suffering and affliction, God knows. He knows. He sees you. He doesn't just see you in a crowd. He sees you, whatever it is you are suffering with, 
whatever trial you're walking through, whatever pain you're dealing with, he sees you. He knows you in that affliction. Do you believe that this morning? Trials don't mean God has turned his back. Come on, I've said this so many times. Some of you have been around for 10 years are tired of me saying it. But either you're in a trial, you just got out of a trial, or you're headed into a trial. Happy spring. (laughs) Not spring yet. But it's true. Jesus promises you're going to face trials. James tells us you're going to face trials. It's going to happen. But so often we can be surprised or caught off guard as if we thought life was just going to keep being a bunch of lollipops and roses. If you happen to be in that season right now. So what do you do? Maybe you're, maybe you're in that time right now where you're like, wow, life is good, and I'm not in affliction, I'm not in trial, and things are going easy. What do you do then in that time? Here's what you do. You cling so close to God so that you're ready for when the trial comes. Because it's coming. I feel like, I don't know, 60 70% of the job that Tyler Jordan and I is to help you prepare for trials. And the rest of it is help us walk through trials together. Because they're coming. It's a part of the life, of the game that we're in. It's going to happen. And so now, take your time to pursue God. Because what it, what it does, here's what it reveals. When you face a trial and you're shocked and don't know what God is doing, it reveals that when you weren't in the trial, you weren't pursuing God to prepare yourself for the trial. That's what it does for me. So be prepared. Consider, if you're doing well, no trials, this is spring training because the season's coming. So prepare and be ready. And if you are in it, know that God sees you in it. God sees you in it, and God sees the one that's coming, and he wants to be there to walk with you through it. I love, I love the verses that say that God says, it's 2 Corinthians, where he says, he will never leave you, nor will he ever forsake you, nor never will he ever forsake you. He's going to be with you. He will never forsake you. So he sees you in whatever trial you're walking through this morning. So friends, please, use, if you're, if you're doing strong now, use it to hunt down God, to pursue God, to know God, to prepare your soul. And if you are in a trial, know that he's with you. Know that he is with you. I don't know if you see, this is exactly how Moses crafts these 18 verses that this would be a time of blessing that can come in the middle of trial. That if you're clinging to God, in our case, clinging to Christ during trial, it actually can be a fruitful time if our hearts are in the right place. And he takes verses 8 to 14, and not if you notice, but in the middle of it, not the beginning of it, not at the end of it, but smack dab in the middle of it, in verse 12, he tells us how they responded to this oppression. Right? Follow with me. i got to remember, I've been in this all week and you haven't. Verses 8 to 14 are all the verses that have dealt shrewdly with them, afflict them, ruthlessly, hard labor, bitter labor, slavery, ruthless teaching them, treating them ruthlessly. All this bad, 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 bad. But then look what he drops in verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. That's insane. You, You expect to read the opposite, don't you? The more they got oppressed, the more they gave up the more they got discouraged, the more they separated themselves from other people, the more they felt downtrodden and depressed. And, but it doesn't. It's the opposite. And I think Moses writes this paragraph and puts that in the middle of it, in the middle of all the bad, to help us to see that even in the middle of all the bad, you can multiply and spread. 
that your faith can multiply and spread, that you can still be strong through those things. In fact, he uses the word more. The more they're oppressed, the more they multiplied. The more they were oppressed, the more they spread. And I know he's talking about physically, but I think he's talking about more than that for them and for us, that it's possible in times of suffering and trial and heartache and pain that you can still have your faith multiply and spread. It can happen. Do you believe that? I feel like, I feel like we got to believe that now, before trial comes. Believe that, God, when it comes, I believe you're going to be with me. I believe you're going to see me. I believe you're going to know me in it. And I believe that even in it, you can help my faith multiply, that you can keep me strong. And to have our faith go before us for the trial that we don't even know is coming yet. And to do that, I think we can say this lastly, the fifth thing about God is that God is ready to strengthen and multiply your faith in affliction. He's ready to do it. He can do it. He loves to do it. I know you don't know the end of your story. I know some of you this morning are struggling and life is hard, depressing, challenges and trials. And I can't stand here this morning and tell you that your story is going to play out similar to this one in Exodus. But I can tell you with confidence based on God's word that he's with you in it, that he sees you in it, and that he is able to strengthen you through it and to show himself strong in it. He can. And I know a lot of you in this room can testify to that. You've been through them. And you could say, I, I, I survived. And I, I came out stronger on the other side. And you would also raise your hand and say, but it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. And so before we even get into the fun part of the story, where God does all kinds of stuff to set them free, I want us to identify with the suffering they walked through and identify with it where we can and to ask God to teach us the things he wants to teach us before we even get into the good stuff or the easy stuff. So this is how God takes us to be his people. He takes us to be his people. He blesses. And then he also allows trials and suffering to come. That's our God. And many times the blessings come not in times of prosperity or ease, but they come in times of hardship and pain and suffering. So I pray for us that God would continue the work that he started in our hearts, that we would realize that he's faithful, that he loves to bless us, that God's plan often includes bitterness mixed in with blessing, but that God sees you in it because he does and he's ready to strengthen you, whatever you're going through. And so know this morning, if you're in a hard season, that that is what the church is for. That's why we're here. Whether you're just struggling in a tangible, earthly way, money, relationships, health, or whether your faith is weak. Maybe you're here this morning like, man, my faith is so weak, I don't even know what I believe anymore. This is the place to be. That's why we're here. 
Because every one of us goes through a season where suffering and trials causes us to doubt our faith. It happens. And so we need each other to help each other stay strong, help each other believe. And so let's do that together. Amen? Commit to that. Don't walk through it alone. Whatever it is, you need others. You need us. We need to help each other to believe these things lest we drift and wander away.